Good morning, Elevation. Well, here I am back at home. It's good to be with you virtually once again, and in keeping with the spirit of the lockdown, I'm going to be recording my sermons from home for hopefully just the next couple of weeks. Last week, we began a series to start off the new year called The Very Good Gospel, based on a book by Lisa Sharon Harper, where she explores how everything wrong can be made right. Last week, we started off by looking at what it means for us to talk about the gospel being good news for creation. The good news we discovered is about the reconciliation of all things, all people and all things. And over the next few weeks, we're going to continue to explore different spheres where reconciliation is required. In preparation for this series and upcoming series, I was talking to Kristen Taylor, who's a member of our teaching team. And she said about this morning's theme about women and men, uh, she said, I'd love to talk about that, but I really think that a man should be talking about this theme. So I do so with a little bit of fear and trembling, I will admit, uh, and the encouragement of Frederick Beekner, who said, let the preacher take heart. He is called not to be an actor, a magician in the pulpit. He is called to be himself. He is called to tell the truth as he has experienced it. He is called to be human. And so that's what I'll do this morning. I will be human and I will also not be the last voice to talk about this theme. Because every single week, uh, we have an opportunity for you to join in conversation at the end of our service on our neighborhood hangouts. But over the course of the next few weeks, we're actually gonna do something a little different. Our pastoral team is gonna take turns facilitating conversations on Tuesday evenings, which will give you a chance to dive a little deeper into these themes. There's a lot of meat to them. And sometimes a 30 or 40 minute post-service discussion just isn't long enough. Or maybe the discussion time after a service doesn't, doesn't work for you and your family situation. So we'd encourage you to join us. There'll be a link in the comments right now, but we'll also be sending that out with our weekly email on Tuesday. So hopefully you'll be able to take part of that. Good news is kind of a funny thing because a lot of the time, good news is really just replacing something bad. For example, it's good news that local healthcare providers have been receiving uh, first shots of the vaccine, but this is only good news because we're in the midst of a global pandemic, right? So when we talk about these things that are good news, it's also kind of an acknowledgement that something just isn't right with the way things are to begin with. Now, in recent months, the world of Major League Sports has had several firsts, and I wanna share just three of those with you. Some of you who follow the sports world will be familiar with these, you would have heard these things, and others, this might be something new. So this might have been a couple of months ago now. Uh, Kim Ng was hired as the general manager of baseball's Miami Marlins, and she became the first female general manager in a major professional sports team. This is a significant accomplishment. Uh, and uh, there was a lot of fanfare around this because she's put in a lot of work, a lot of years of service, and finally had this opportunity. And it gives this idea that perhaps the door will be open for others in the future. Uh, then about a week or so ago, uh, Becky Hammond uh, filled in when the head coach of the San Antonio Spurs and NBA basketball team was ejected from the game. He pointed to her and he said, you know, you've got the team here. And she became the first female to be a head coach of an NBA basketball team, of an NBA basketball game. Um, afterwards, I read some of the comments and the head coaches, he had a really great perspective on this. And I just wanna share like one or two lines. He said, uh, I wanted her on my staff because of the work she does. And she happens to be a woman, which basically should be irrelevant, but it's not in our world. As we've seen, it's been so difficult for women to obtain certain positions. He went on to talk about how she is absolutely qualified to be a head coach in the NBA, which was encouraging, I'm sure, for her to hear. And then just a couple of days ago, I read news about a woman named Bianca Smith, who was hired by a minor league affiliate of the Boston Red Sox to become the first female head coach in a Major League Baseball environment. 
in the interview with her after she talked about how obviously grateful for the opportunity she was, uh, she said, I think it's a great opportunity also to kind of inspire other women who are interested in this game. This is not really something I thought about when I was younger. So good news, yes, but also only because until this year, the doors have been closed to women in these various roles. A number of years ago, I guess maybe two or three years ago, I was sitting at a conference table and the organizer of the event said, okay, you know, as we kind of head into this next session, I want to encourage you to talk about something that your church is going through, maybe a difficult challenge that you're going through, share it with the people around your, your, your table. And so our church was in the middle of a very challenging season. And I thought, oh, I dare not mention this. This is ridiculous. No one will be able to identify. But then I had this thought, this will probably be the last conference I'm attending with this group. So I might as well be honest. And I told them that our church was having these conversations about the intersection of same-sex attraction and Christian faith. And I talked about how challenging it was for us to navigate these things. Um, and then someone else uh, surprised me when they responded and said, we're going through the same thing. And I thought, how is that possible? I just couldn't imagine that. But then he finished his sentence. He said, only about women in leadership. I mean, my first reaction was, my friend, that is not the same thing. But it was an interesting reminder, I think, of the different challenges that churches face with respect to the roles of women and men. Now, the last thing that I want to do is pit one church against another. That's not what this is about at all. But I thought I should share that example because some of you may be wondering why we're even talking about this in 2021, um, about the value of men and women working together. But something I've been learning in recent years is that acknowledging that someone shouldn't be an, something shouldn't be an issue doesn't do very much to help to change the fact that it is an issue. Something actually has to be done in order to affect change. When I would have been, I don't know, around say 18, maybe 19 years old, the church that Melissa and I were attending was a Pentecostal church. And up until this particular time, they had had an all male board. And I can remember, I have like visible memories of the morning when the first female board member who had been voted in was serving communion. And up until that point, every time the church would share communion, it would be a row of, let's say there were eight men in suits at the front of the church serving the elements. And on this particular moment, there was a woman in the line. Now, the reality is for a church with a long-standing tradition, that was a really big leap forward. For our own church, at the very beginning, on day one, our core team consisted of Melissa and myself, one other young man and one other young woman. So right from the beginning, uh, men and women have been leading alongside each other in significant ways, leading worship, chairing committees, teaching our kids, leading youth, preaching, um, offering pastoral care, and yes, also serving on the board. Now, please don't get me wrong. Elevation still has a ways to go when it comes to shalom. And I have work to do. I want to acknowledge that. But I also believe that we have a strong foundation to build on. But then why is this news at all? I mean, isn't this the precisely the thing that you would expect to find in a community that takes its cues from the life of Jesus and the story of scripture? At risk of repeating myself, much like last week's passage from Genesis about humanity subduing creation, it seems like the Bible might actually be part of the problem when it comes to the lack of shalom between women and men in our world. <clears throat> now, I don't know if you uh, would have seen this commercial. It started during the World Juniors over the holidays there, but uh, it's a commercial where it goes from house to house, all kind of across the country, showing people building snowmen. 
And these snowmen are wearing all kinds of different things. It's not just like the carrot nose, the coal eyes and the top hat. It's all kinds of different um, uh, things, colors and ethnic dress and flags and the rest of it. And uh, at the very end of the commercial, it says, we're all made of the same snow. And it's like, oh, that's a fantastic image. And it's also kind of the story that the Bible starts out with. In Genesis 1:27, we read, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I was reading this week, uh, someone came up with this great idea. They, they were saying, if we want to think about what it means to reflect the image of God, we could think about an actor who is charged with portraying an actual historical character. So Cynthia Erivo as Harriet Tubman, or Daniel Day-Lewis as Abraham Lincoln. So not only do they have to kind of get into character, but they have to actually reflect the true character of the person they're portraying. And as I was thinking about that illustration, I was like, yeah, so there's all this work that has to be done to reflect or portray the image of the person they're portraying. But at the same time, there's, there's a foundational piece that, that can't be missing. Um, Cynthia Erivo has to be a believable Harriet Tubman. Daniel Day-Lewis has to be a believable Abraham Lincoln. You could not have Jack Black play Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was tall, slender, had a majestic kind of way that he carried himself and Jack Black has none of those. So it wouldn't be believable, try as hard as he may. Carolyn Custis James says the image of God cannot be reflected if it is all men. It's a great analogy, a great way for us to think about how we can work as hard as we want to reflect the image of God. But if we're not doing it as men and women together, then we're not capturing what God created us in the beginning. The Genesis story speaks to who we are as individuals, who we are together, and how we are to engage in God's work in the world. But over time, something happened to the stories that we told about our origins. Now, interestingly, Genesis 1 and 2 provide two different stories, one of man and woman being created together in God's image, and another of man being created out of the dust of the earth, and then woman subsequently being taken from the side of the first man. There's a famous line in Genesis chapter two, or basically God looks down and he sees this, this human creature of his who seems very lonely. And the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So about four years ago, I listened to a profound podcast by Carolyn Custis James, who I just quoted recently. She's a speaker and author, and she talked about, uh, her talk was called The Blessed Alliance. And she's talked about the struggle that she began to have when she was reading this passage with one of the particular words in Hebrew, which is the word Azer. It's translated in the passage I just read, helper, that God created a helper for a man. Uh, but what she started to realize is that when you look through the Old Testament, this word appears a handful of times. Only in Genesis is it translated helper, um, but every other time it's actually a, a powerful translation. It would be like uh, the word Azer would refer to God coming down basically to rescue his people or God sending an army or some other uh, military support to help people have victory in army. And she's like, wait a second, why when this refers to a woman, is it this kind of weak word or image like a helper? But when it refers to everything else, it's just like this mighty powerful thing. She comes to the conclusion that the Azer is a warrior. She is called to join the man in the battle against the enemy. We need each other. We make each other stronger. We're better in the battle when we stand together and we're hindered in our mission when we divide and work separately. And so this is how our human story begins. 
a man and a woman working together to care for the world that God had created and put under their charge. But the paradise of Eden didn't last very long. Soon enough, Adam and Eve are banished from the garden and the language of Genesis turns to that of men ruling over women. In my research this week, I came across a painting from the 15th century painter Masaccio. It's called Expulsion from the Garden of Eden. And as you take a look at this work of art, I want you to just notice the brokenness, the despair. It's almost like a, like a wailing at the loss that Adam and Eve would have experienced being expelled from the garden. So here they had everything at their hands and, and all of a sudden it's taken away from them. Now, much of what follows in the wake of the expulsion from Eden is unabashedly patriarchal. And this is a big word that essentially means a system of society or government, or we could say religion as well, that is primarily controlled by men. Lisa Sharon Harper kind of explains a little bit about how the Bible is, uh, how the Bible is written and tells about a time of history where this absolutely was the dominant feature. She writes in a patriarchal society where women were brought, bought and sold in marriage, where the highest praise a woman could hope for was that she was beautiful, where women could not own property, work an honest job or divorce an abusive husband. People absorbed the shame of being seized, beaten and raped. This was the dominant cultural context that served as a backdrop to our beloved scriptures and was often the vantage point from which they were written. But remember, all of this was in the context of a fallen world that has always been in need of redemption. Our second reading brings us to the foot of the cross as Jesus takes his final breath, surrounded not by his chosen male disciples, but by a group of faithful women. I can't help but notice that at the turning point of world history, women were left standing at a distance, but also that they were the only ones left standing there. Mark 15 verse 41 says that in Galilee, these women had followed him, Jesus, and cared for his needs. And no wonder they followed him. After all, this is Jesus we're talking about. Jesus who allowed a woman of ill repute to anoint his feet with oil who stopped to talk to a Samaritan woman as she drew water from a well, who stooped down to speak on behalf of a woman accused of adultery, who praised a woman for sitting at his feet to learn, a position normally reserved only for men, who healed the daughter of a Canaanite woman, who raised the expectations around divorce to protect women from being taken advantage of, who condemned lusting after a woman as kin to adultery, who uttered the words, take heart, daughter, as he healed a woman with an issue of blood who arranged for the care of his own mother while still hanging on the cross, and who chose as the first witness of his resurrection a woman, his close friend Mary, whose testimony would not even be valid in the eyes of lesser men. Jesus, writes Caroline Custis James, came to restore the blessed alliance. Now, in the decades that followed this gathering at the foot of the cross, the early church wrestled with what it meant to live this way in a patriarchal world with mixed success. Many of you who have been around a church context for any length of time will be familiar with Paul's context-specific advice to local congregations about the role of women. Things like what women should wear, um, that women should not teach men, that they should be silent when they're in the church. And unfortunately, over the years, these 
context-specific instructions to local communities in the first century Mediterranean have been told that they'd apply uh, to all churches at all times in all history. And, and there are still many communities of faith who operate under those same kind of guidelines. That's part of the legacy of the, the New Testament churches wrestling with the, the shalom of men and women. But there's another piece to it too. I mean, Paul writes in Galatians 3.28 in this beautiful verse, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Beautiful words that the church was trying to find a way to live out. But it wasn't just, they weren't just words. There were actions that accompanied them. Women were leaders in the early church alongside men, including Mary of Bethany, the first to proclaim the risen Lord, Phoebe, a financial sponsor of Paul's missionary journeys, Priscilla, the gifted preacher, and Junia, the bright and respected apostle. History tells the long, unfortunate story of a breakdown in the Blessed Alliance. So our question is this, can we be part of writing a better story as we live and worship and serve alongside one another as men and women who jointly reflect the image of God. Again from Custis James, the rise of women is good news for women. It is also good news for men. This is one of the lines that I hope really sticks with you this morning. As we wrap up, I'd like to return briefly to the Garden of Eden, drawing from a reflection by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs found in the book, Not Just Good, But Beautiful. He observes that when Adam first encountered, encountered his newly created partner, he named her Isha, woman. This is now bone of my bones, scriptures say, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken from man. For Adam, writes Sachs, she was a type, not a person. He gave her a noun, not a name. He defines her as a derivative of himself, something taken from man. She is not yet for him someone other a person in her own right. She is merely a reflection of himself. Now the narrative of Genesis goes on to explain how God cursed Adam to hard labor and pronounced the sentence, from dust you are and to dust you will return. And it was at this moment, staring his mortality in the face that his life would come to an end, that Adam realized he needed this other woman in order for some part of him to live on beyond his own death. But he didn't need her because she was like him, but precisely because she was unlike him. Sachs continues, at that moment, she ceased to be for him a type and became a person in her own right. And a person has a proper name. That is what he gave her, the name Hava, Eve, meaning giver of life. Only when men and women come together as the blessed alliance that we were created to be, do we have the capacity to reflect the image of God and fully enter into God's creative work in the world? Before we head off into our neighbors group for some discussion, I'm gonna close our time in prayer. So let us pray. Lord, I am grateful for the gift of life. I am grateful that when we read about the story of who we are, that we read that we were created in your image male and female, created in your image to be a blessed alliance. God, I pray that the truth of who we are would cling to us and that the lies that we may have believed, the lies that we may have spread uh, would fall to the side as we find out what it means to bring shalom, to bring peace, to bring wholeness, to bring reconciliation to our relationships with one another 
as men and women as we build your kingdom together. In Christ's name, amen. Peace to you this week.